0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast. Working alongside the UK's three single services is a military command deemed important enough to merit its own Chief of Staff as one of our very top military officers. Strategic Command was originally known as Joint Forces Command when it was created a decade ago and draws its personnel from across the Army, the Royal Navy and the RAF. It's responsible for joint capabilities across those services. But what does that mean? And why does it matter? Strategic command is led by General Sir James Hockenhull, and he's been telling SITREP's Sean Greschek about what he and his command bring to the UK's defence.
1: So I've referred to myself as the accidental general. Growing up, I certainly never thought, um, I thought I would join the army. I never thought I would be a senior officer, let alone be. I didn't even know what general was. My father was uh, uh, an NCO in the Navy, uh, and then he was a taxi driver. My mother worked in a factory building TV sets. I didn't know what generals were or what they did. When I joined the Army, um, I joined a kind of slightly odd um, small part of the Army in the Intelligence Corps, which is the Army has halved in size over the course of my military career. The Intelligence Corps has quadrupled in size. Uh, The most senior officer in the Intelligence Corps in 1986 was a brigadier. In those days it was always a man because there were only male officers at that point i'm really glad to say that's changed and we've now got a major general uh, in the intelligence corps and she is a remarkable officer but from that period that would be the ultimate expectation that you could make that one person of each generation would go on to be a brigadier and if they could endure that long so i never had any thought that i would end up being a general and in many ways In many ways, I I don't think of myself as being a general. My function is not to command anything. I'm not the same, I don't have the same role as the heads of the Navy, Army and Air Force. They've got their roles and the current heads of those three organizations are all brilliant individuals and they do their jobs brilliantly. My role is, uh, is to support people. So I really don't command strategic command my job is to support, enable, empower, and help people be what they can be. So of all the bits of strategic command that I've got, whether it be the Permanent Joint Headquarters, um, overseeing Defence's global operations, Special Forces doing their remarkable things, Defence Intelligence, the National Cyber Force, our overseas bases, Defence Digital capability, the Defence Medical Services, or our logistics and support capability, they do all their things for defense they do them for me they do them for defense they do them to support the army navy air force and for wider defense output my job is to help them be successful and i really like it i really enjoy it but my job is not to not to kind of to be very grand about anything
0: the whole point of strategic command and explaining its significance if you were going to simplify um, and explain, you know, what is strategic command? Um, what is your ultimate definition?
1: So strategic command holds many of the joint capabilities of defence. So things which are done not on a single service basis of being part of an Army, Navy, Air Force, but where there are um, things which are um, by design but that we want to do them jointly. Um, but more than that, strategic command is about integrating defense so what we want to do is to drive integration for defense so this is about making defense more than the sum of its parts and and there is a you know we have a brilliant navy we have a brilliant army we have a brilliant air force that's fantastic but but we when we when we fight we fight collectively we don't fight individually and as a consequence what we need is we need to integrate that force and my responsibility in strategic command is to help deliver on that defense purpose of defending the nation and helping it prosper. And we do that by both owning capabilities, which are providing outputs for all of defense. And an example would be defense intelligence, which is providing a service to all of defense. Uh, But we do that also through trying to integrate capabilities across defense. We do that both inside strategic command but crucially, we do that with everybody across Defence. So we we are an organisation which partners with every other part of Defence. And our job is to help everybody else be as brilliant as they can be and making sure that we are, that Defence, crucially, is more than some of its parts and is able to deliver on its mission.
0: Which leads me to, to sort of bring up the, the 2021 integrated review and the whole core theme of that being multi-domain integration, you know, how is that going?
1: In strategic command, we're responsible for delivering a large part of that integrated force going forward. And I think we're not starting from 2021, didn't start from a, a sort of uh, a standing start. We already had integrated over over time. If you go back through military history, whether it be the, the air land concept in the 1970s, um, through to kind of joint operations, the creation of the permanent joint headquarters to coordinate operations across defense coming from the 1998 uh, strategic defense review. We have a range of things that we do in air, land, maritime, space, and cyber. And what we want to do is to make sure that we don't just integrate them when we go on operations, but we integrate them by design. So when we're buying equipment, we're thinking of it not just as a ship, or as a plane, or as a tank, um, or any other capability. But we're thinking of them as parts of a system, um, because when we fight, we fight as a system. Um, and, and therefore it's important that we're able to make sure that, um, that it works seamlessly. A, a, a good example perhaps is in, um, in communications and digital capability. We've all got very used to being able to have seamless communication with anybody in the world, um, through your your iphone or or Android phone or phone of your choice it doesn 't matter that someone has a a different telephone um, you can phone them up and you can talk to them and you can video call with them. you can do all sorts of things. We run a much more complicated system, so making sure that we can share data seamlessly that we can communicate effectively that that takes design it isn 't something that we should leave to chance.
0: And in terms of the organisation itself, um, you sit across um, so many different elements of defence, including special forces. How do special forces sit within strategic command and how do they work within it?
1: So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the, the, the nature of, of what special forces do. But I think, I think if I can give you a, a, a single example, we ask incredible things of our special forces and they are um, an incredible um, group of individuals they are always pushing new boundaries, and as a consequence of the, their ingenuity, their imagination, and their initiative we're able to see new ways of working, new ways of doing things, developing new new concepts of operation, but also um, how we might use capabilities differently or how we might generate new capabilities so so special forces to me in strategic command also act as a, a vanguard um, for defense. They are by their very nature an integrated organization um, because it's more than just a particular unit. Actually, it's a group um, which is able to generate impact and effect. So they're a, a microcosm of defense in one sense. They're also a vanguard which enables us to do new and different things. And then we can want to, what my responsibility is to make sure we can pull those things forward into the wider force. And I think there are things that we're doing in UK defence now in the wider force, which perhaps only a few years ago um, would have been the preserve of a special force. So in some ways, they incubate kind of new ideas and new capabilities. And by doing that in a, in a really operationally focused, um, active group of individuals who are determined to be the very best they can be, it really benefits wider defence and it helps me um, because it's it's kind of integration in action. And then I can try and help and um, bring that into the wider defence um, organisation.
0: Can personnel expect to see more kit, more new ideas by getting more of that trickle down effect?
1: So I, so I think it's, it's not always necessarily about more. Um, to me, it's about being better. If you speak to um, infantrymen, uh, and women, they will be in a position where, you know, the last thing they want is to be more things because usually they've got to carry it. So how can we make it better? How can we, how can we really enhance that capability? We, we spoke earlier a little bit about uncrewed systems or drones. And certainly uh, an area I think where wider defense has benefited has been the way in which our special forces have been able to use those uncrewed systems, those, the lessons of how they use them and the types of capability they use. And we're now seeing a lot of that being pulled forward into the wider force. And we've seen that over a number of years. And that's just one example, I think, of many.
0: I want to talk to you about artificial intelligence. What work is being done um, since the the, the centre um, was set up? And what are your thoughts on the advantages and disadvantages um, of the emergence of artificial intelligence and how it's used in the defence world?
1: So, as you say, we've created uh, the Defence Artificial Intelligence Centre. Um, of course, that's not the only place in defence where artificial intelligence is being um, either examined or indeed um, employed. But we wanted to create a, a, a focus to make sure that we we're able to to leverage artificial intelligence. In the early um, work of this, and, and I saw this in my previous role as the chief of defense intelligence, And um, we've used artificial intelligence quite a lot in terms of how we deal with enormous volumes of data. In our surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, we gather enormous volumes of data, which is far too great um, for human beings to be able to process on their own. And quite a lot of that, the value um, of that information was, I suppose people would say, was kind of lost on the cutting room floor. Um, you use that information for your particular purpose, and then you kind of dis, you disregarded it, when in fact there's still value that could come from that information. And we're, we've been using artificial intelligence to help that sort of uh, discrimination. So perhaps try and bring that to life by an example. Photographic interpreters in kind of old language or imagery analysts, people that are looking at satellite imagery. In the past, uh, an individual would start a shift and they'd have a stack of images. In the old days, it would be a a physical stack of images, now a set of images on a screen. And they would have to look through all of those images in order to determine what had changed. Well, the application of, of advanced technology, including artificial intelligence, and in this case, probably more machine learning, but but what we're able to do is to make sure that the image which showed the change was immediately served um, to the analyst rather than having to go through and do the act of discrimination. So what that's doing is it's helping us in terms of pace. It's helping us in terms of accuracy. Um, it's also helping us in terms of kind of moving our analytical capability sort of up the value chain. Um, so it also means that our analysts, I think, are able to get I'm a great deal more satisfaction from what they do, because many of the kind of mandrolic tasks which they had previously been required to do in order to get to the point of adding value, we've been able to draw quite a lot of that down.
0: Do you feel then that there are more advantages as opposed to disadvantages in terms of the use of AI?
1: So defense is an organization which has you know, always got the potential we could be in conflict with others. Others will undoubtedly be seeking to use artificial intelligence in ways to affect um, our capabilities. I think for us, we need to both be able to be willing to exploit opportunities and advantages which come um, through artificial intelligence. We're going to see this, you know, this isn't limited to the military um, sphere. We're going to see this in every element of our lives. So We'll see artificial intelligence playing a role. There are lots of areas, I think, at the moment where people perhaps don't realise that artificial intelligence is playing such a fundamental part um, in their lives. Now, we need to guard against the risks. Those risks are both the risks which are posed by adversaries using um, capabilities enhanced by artificial intelligence um, or other advanced technologies. That's a that's a, a common theme. We'll have done that for forever as new technology arrives. Um, I think we also need to make sure that we understand how artificial intelligence is working. So we make decisions um, which could involve people being killed. And if you're making those decisions, you need surety um, that you're making those decisions accurately and properly. And therefore it's important when we bring artificial intelligence into those those decision-making chains, that we understand how the artificial intelligence is working and what the artificial intelligence is doing in that sense, and so there's a uh, for us there's an important element of the sort of the moral and ethical use of artificial intelligence is is fundamentally important to how we do this. We are we're a we're a moral organisation. Um, you know, we talk about defence power. Um, we talk about our conceptual component, the physical component, and a moral component. Part of that is about our people, but part of that is also about the fact that we operate in a in a moral and ethical way, uh, and so we need to make sure as we bring these new technologies into um, into our work, particularly when it's affecting our decision making process, that we have got surety over what the technology is doing and how it's influencing those decisions. Because you know, we 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 want to make sure that we're acting in the you know, an appropriate and proportionate manner.
0: At the beginning of of twenty twenty four there are a, a huge range of, of threats um, to, to the UK, to the world, for potential conflicts to unfold. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of, of China and Taiwan? And, and when we look right across, you know, taking a step back, what is the biggest threat, do you think, um, to, to global security right now?
1: So I, th- I think sometimes in answering these questions, it, it's a challenge. It's a bit like sort of rank your your favourite List of X or Y, and trying to say this is a bigger challenge than that, I think is is at times a slightly uh, invidious piece. I think in trying to answer the question, I think that to me it's around recognizing that so many of these threats that we that we face, or the challenges that are posed by particular nations, they are global in their implication and are often global in their reach. So sometimes we sort of we zoom in on what's happening in. Uh, a particular region or a particular conflict. And of course, that's important that we do that because we need to understand those in detail and we need to take action where appropriate. But at the same time, you also then need to kind of zoom out and look at the broader context. And many of these threats and challenges we face are are not in themselves isolated. Often they, they kind of come together. So the fact that North Korea, who you know, recent rhetoric would pose challenge around um, North Korea's ambitions over... The acquisition and potential employment of nuclear weapons and their missile program. At the same time, North Korea is providing a significant amount of material um, to Russia to enable them to continue um, their fight um, in Ukraine. So, so there's a sort of almost an, a kind of intersection and overlap between many of these threats. So, describing this is the greatest threat, that's the greatest threat. I think is is perhaps a little invidious. We need to. Need to be able to operate at different focal lengths. We need to be able to zoom in on problems, but we also need then to kind of come out and look at the wider context. You know, the world is a dangerous place. Um, and we need to make sure that we're able to, um, to address those challenges, but we need to do that both in the specific, but also sort of in broader context. Uh, and I think that's where, um, the role that, um, the UK plays through membership of the, the Security Council of the, of the United Nations in a variety of other kind of international fora are are so important. But it's also a, a consideration um, for UK defence in terms of our, our global presence and our global role. And one of the areas of strategic command um, that I look after are our overseas bases and our global defence network of defence attaches and loan service teams overseas. Um, and it's an important part of of kind of military diplomacy. Um, and our engagement, being uh, supportive and reinforcing, you know, the diplomacy um, lead from the um, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. But that's an important element of, of UK defence of, of operating with friends and partners globally in order to both provide reassurance to work together, to build capability, um, also to generate understanding um, of those situations. So so I think, yes, I see a a set of complex challenges which Um, faces, but also it's important to think about how we're operating and trying to do that on a global basis.
0: I want to talk to you about uh, the protection of sensitive information. Um, Given stories where we've seen breaches of the Official Secrets Act or concerns about former personnel going and working for for Chinese companies, is it time to update the Official Secrets Act?
1: Um, Well, uh, I I think there's inevitability that... uh, that things are are different. I mean the the official secret I think was was nineteen eleven, um I think was when it was um first first written. And the and the world inevitably is uh is a fundamentally different place. And uh and where, you know, I think previously we were thinking of of security being largely a a physical set of activities of stopping people from taking things and sharing them inappropriately, of course there are a range of different vulnerabilities now which come. So So whatever we do, we need to make sure that we're focused on the sorts of risks and threats that, that we face. And I think regardless of, of the official secrets act, of course, in, in defense, a fundamental, you know, one of the, one of the principles of war is security, making sure that we are secure in our operations in, in every sense that that means is a really important part of what we do. Of course, we run a, a, an amazingly large and diverse enterprise spread across you know all of the united kingdom and with operations globally so it's a it's a not insignificant challenge to make sure that everything remains secure but it's a really important part of what we do that the act itself and the ability to prosecute under that is perhaps the kind of the the responsibility of others but but the importance of security not just security but also running appropriate counterintelligence operations um is fundamentally important to military capability and and we should see it not as a sort of uh a backstop thing, this is this is a crucial element about military capability and military operations. If you're not secure, then you are vulnerable. And if you're vulnerable, you may not win. And, and we need to make sure that when we conduct our military operations, and particularly when we warfight, that we've got the capabilities that will win those conflicts.
0: How confident are you that you can combat the increasingly aggressive hacking that you are seeing?
1: So, I mean, it, it's a as with all threats and challenges we face, the parallel is that many of these things feel that they're sort of they're an arms race where there'll be new capabilities developed, uh, new techniques, new vulnerabilities that people are trying to exploit. Um, and we need to make sure that we're, um, we're at the sort of top of our game to do that. I, I go back to making sure we've got the right quality of people coming to do our digital and cyber work because we need the very best people to be coming and doing that for us um, and making sure that we can we can have the very best talent because it it is that in many of these areas whether it be with hackers or whether it be with adversary nation states you know, we need to make sure that we've got people at the at the top of the game in order to make sure that we can combat those those threats.
0: As we approach the the two year anniversary of, of the invasion of, of Ukraine, what can you tell us about your memories of? of- the moment that that you knew everything was unfolding and going to Downing Street and, and briefing Boris Johnson.
1: So, um, well, I I'd probably start earlier. I mean, I think we we knew knew quite a long way in advance of what we thought was going to happen. Um, of course, there was always a possibility that um, uh, that President Putin could have chosen a a different path, but we were we were fairly sure from uh, from quite a distance out over what we thought would happen, um, and of course that. That certainty um, increased as we got through to um, into february of, of twenty two I remember it being an incredibly intense period where I had a remarkable team of of individuals who were doing all of the hard work we 'd set ourselves into a battle rhythm of working where um, lots of people were working incredible hours. I think i had been i had been at home. Um, for about an hour or so, this was, I think I got home at, at about one o'clock in the morning. I'd been home for about an hour. I got a phone call to say that um, all the indications were that the attack was about to um, start, at which point I got back on my bicycle, cycled back into the Ministry of Defence. No matter how much you expect something and no matter how much it's predicted, when something happens, it's still a moment that sort of stops you in your tracks. A war in Europe of being such a sort of almost unconscionable, um uh but the response of, of our political leadership was remarkable. the commitment the the immediacy um, of what they wanted to do i thought was was enormously impressive and of course it wasn 't just it wasn 't just me it wasn 't just my team but there were you know wider intelligence enterprise, whether that be across uh, the United Kingdom with other allies and partners and it was a real privilege to be a sort of part of um, of a a system that really worked um, and that was giving insight and foresight um, about what was going to happen. And then as soon as it did happen, of course, we moved into the mode of of being able to understand what was happening um, and support political decision making.
0: What did you say to the prime minister and what did he say
1: to you? Um, Well, I think all all these conversations are, are, are relatively personal and it's not about me and what i said to the defense secretary or what i might have said to the to the prime minister more crucially rather than it being about what i did or what i said it was more around the decisions that they took um and and as i say i was i was incredibly impressed both in the in the run-up to the conflict and um, the decisions that were taken about supporting ukraine um providing um, capability such as the 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 end laws or anti-tank weapons that were provided those sorts of decisions, I think, were, were, were brave decisions that were taken in advance. And, and I would say the kind of the bravery of those decisions was, was continued into the decision making that occurred um, immediately post the conflict and has endured it up until the statement that we heard from the, the Prime Minister about the United Kingdom's continued commitment to Ukraine for the next year.
0: Is it true that you turned down the opportunity for an interview uh, for head of the armed forces?
1: So, I mean, back in the midst of whenever whenever that was, there were a number of people that were invited uh, potentially to uh, to apply. My sense then was that there were better people who were better suited to have that sort of leadership role um, on behalf of all of Defence. I think we made exactly the right choice in selecting Tony Radakin, And I think he's doing an, an amazing job and I hope you'll I hope continue doing that for a considerable period of time, I'm not convinced that that would have been the right job for me and that I would have been the right person to do that. And I think there's, there's an important element for, for all of us to kind of to, to try and understand ourselves um, and understand not only our abilities, but also we also should be able to recognise our, our own limitations uh, and, and to try and put ourselves into areas where we feel most suitable. And I think me serving in strategic command, I think that offers a better contribution to UK defence than it would have been me trying to compete for a job where I think actually I wouldn't have been the right choice and where there were there were people who were far more suited to that role than I would ever be.
0: All right, General, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP.